0: Welcome to the David Suisa podcast. I'm David Suisa here in the Jewish Journal Studios. We're delighted today to have our political editor in town from Israel, Shmuel Rosner. Shmuel, great to have you.
1: Great to be in Los Angeles.
0: There is so much going on right now to talk about. There's the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech. On Iran, we're going to start with that and then get into some of the things that we can expect over the next few weeks that are happening in Israel and also over the next summer. So first, on Bibi's speech, were you surprised at the reaction that the speech has ignited?
1: I was not surprised at the reaction. Look, this was this was a big production. It was meant to create, to steer some reaction. And I think this... Uh, this goal was achieved. Of course, the reaction was not just positive. Many people reacted uh, with uh, apprehension or with uh, dismissive uh, comments after the speech. But the speech was meant, first and foremost, to put Iran back on the table. We are awaiting a very important decision by the uh, uh, President of the United States of whether to continue the Iran deal or to try and forced the Iranians into a new set of uh, rules. And I think it was um, important for the prime minister to make sure that this topic is not going anywhere, that this will be the main issue that the world is talking about for for the next two weeks. And he probably achieved that.
0: It's interesting, though. I, I, I noticed a kind of a transition where when we first heard the speech, there was like an oh my God moment. Uh, And then in the reaction, there was a lot of commentary that said, well, it's no big news. It's no news. We already knew that they had a, a secret nuclear plan that they ended in 2003. And the fact that they lied, we always knew that they lied. That's the reason we need the deal. That's the reason we made the deal. There's a real sort of effort to sort of downplay the significance of this achievement from the intelligence community in uh, in Israel, and I've noticed in the last twelve to twenty four hours a sort of a comeback. I think with Brett Stevens' article in the New York Times, the fact that there actually is a good case to make that there was a violation of the JCPOA of the nuclear agree- agreement that was signed uh, in two thousand and fifteen by the very fact that they were required to divulge certain information that they did not. So this was the key. Issue that I've noticed since the speech is—is is this worthy? Was there a violation of the agreement? And if it is, then it makes it really significant. And if it doesn't, then it makes it, like they say, a nothing burger.
1: So, so there there are several issues here that we have to separate. The, the first thing, and, and you're right, the the initial shock or amazement uh, was there, and I think it was mainly because of this fantastic. Achievement by right. yeah by, by the uh, intelligence. Uh, I mean, agencies. they actually
0: took out the they, original binders.
1: Yeah, lo- looking at this archive and and realizing that Israel was able to steal these files from within Iran was quite tantalizing, and and it gives you a food for thought even before we look into the the material itself. The fact that Israel has such access has such uh, first, uh, you know, can put its hand on on original material from within Iran, gives you the sense that you must listen to the experts in Israel who tell you that the Iranians might be still cheating, because Israel probably knows about Iran more than anyone else in the world, and if you needed proof for that, you have it in these files. Whether there is violation on the part of Iran depends on your definition of violation. Israel did not present a smoking gun that Iran has some secret site in which it does something that it is not meant to do. What it did show is that Iran keeps telling us lies. So people are saying, oh, we we know that Iran, the Iranians are lying. But if you look at the agreement, the agreement demands that Iran comes clean and gives us a clear sense of what we had, what they had in the past. It never came cle- it never did that.
0: That was so, the Brett Stevens argument.
1: Exactly, so, so if you say, oh yeah, we know that they keep lying, it's not an important part of the deal, Then then you go into this issue of whether the deal was worthy of what people were saying about it. Or maybe it was a deal that that the American administration and the other partners were so eager to sign that they were willing to ignore, to overlook the fact that the Iranians aren't seriously doing everything that they were demanded to do by the by the accords so again do we have a smoking gun that the iranians are moving towards having a nuclear bomb we don't but we do see that the iranians keep keep lying and we do see that israel has the access by which to make a serious argument that uh, that the iranians are not playing are, are not being honest with this with this deal.
0: Now, uh, from your sources, what's your take on whether President Trump will back out of the deal? I mean, the deadline is May twelfth, correct? The this- deadline is
1: is May twelfth, and and what we've seen with with Trump and the deal is uh, up until a few weeks ago, it was pretty clear that he was going to pull out. Uh, then he had several meetings with European leaders, and his tone didn't completely change, but it somewhat changed. And it is possible, we don't know, it is possible that one of the reasons for which Netanyahu felt the need to, um, to do to have such a press conference is because of his sense that there is
0: on the fence hesitation, mm-hmm.
1: there is some kind of hesitation on the part of the American administration. And maybe there was even some kind of a hint that he got from the White House, we need, we need more in order for us to be able to, to make the case that we can pull out of the agreement. So, so maybe Netanyahu's goal was to give the administration
0: well, some ammunition,
1: ammunition hmm. before it can pull out.
0: Well, two uh, brand new advisors to President Trump, John Bolton and Pompeo, are known to be very anti the deal, right? So you got to figure that in the picture somewhere.
1: Yeah, I, I, look, I think that the instinct of President Trump and what he gets from many of his advisors is, is he's in the right place. He knows that the deal is not a good deal. He knows that to uh, tame Iran, you, you must do something whether his decision will be to pull out now or to give it more time or to put some pressure in in some other ways. I think it is clear to this American administration that letting Iran keep playing the game that it is playing now would not be a good thing for the region and for the world.
0: Now, if he does pull out on the 12th, what do you see as the repercussions?
1: Well, one of the worries that we have about him pulling out is that we don't yet see a strategy replacing the current deal. The deal is bad, but you need a strategy to replace it, and it's it's not clear how far the American administration is willing to commit itself to a new strategy. The strategy has to have an aim, and the aim must be to contain Iran in some way and prevent it from doing what it's doing now. Uh, We see a clear sign of it in Syria. We see that Israel is going into great trouble to prevent Iran from achieving its objectives in Syria. And you have to have uh, such commitment from the American administration to a new strategy before you can have the benefit of a pullout. So if, if the U.S. can pressure the Europeans and if they can convince Iran to sign a new deal that includes developing of uh, of uh, missiles that includes its influence on other regional powers etc then you have a new strategy in place and then you can you can see the benefit of pulling out if not then there can be chaos and and chaos is not good thing for the Middle East
0: well speaking of chaos I heard an interesting take the other day which is that if there is, an escalation and a confrontation between Israel and Iran, uh, that it's sort of better that Iran is in Syria right now because there's something like the population of Iran is agitating, again, against its leadership. They're very westernized. Uh, The leadership there does not have popular support. So Israel is better off fighting Iran outside of Iran in Syria to sort of try to gain more popular support uh, from Iran. What's, what's your take on that? And, and do you see an eventuality where, you know, Iran and Israel just go at it in Syria?
1: Well, there are so
0: many moving parts here. You
1: see this quiet in Syria. You see there are Russians in Syria. The Russians have their own interests, including something that people tend to forget about, but uh, uh, World, World Cup that is taking place uh-huh. in Syria in July. The, the Russians you mean in Russia? In, in June. Yeah, it's taking place in Russia. The Russians do not want the World Cup to be overshadowed by uh, um, war in the Middle East at it's the same time. So there are so many, many moving parts. The, the benefit of having Syria is that Israel and Iran, at least for now, don't have to have a, a, an all-out war. Mm-hmm. They can fight it out in Syria. They can have this... Skirmishes. Smaller, yeah, smaller proxy war in Syria, um, but 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 this war is is important because at the end of the day you'll have one of two situations: either Iran stays in Syria, and has serious forces in Syria, and then Israel loses, or Iran backs down, pull out of Syria, and then Israel wins, and and this is an important battle for both sides. And this is something that the, the great powers, the United States and Russia will have to, to struggle with and they will have to eventually decide whether they want Israel and Iran to have this war or whether they want to impose on one of the sides an arrangement that both of them might not like.
0: Now I'm gonna enter a sensitive issue because I'm gonna say the T word, uh, Donald Trump. And I read this thing recently and I wrote about it that he's uniquely suited to deal with tyrants because he's sort of a, he's a tyrant himself. He understands tyrants who not ideological but who have a raw passion for power and that's how the argument goes. Uh, Is there any validity to that position that Trump is better suited to deal with bullies than were Obama, for example, or Bush?
1: I, I think it is pretty clear that when if you're an Iranian leader and you have to worry about the American president, you are more worried about someone uh, who might surprise you than about someone who's that predictable. Is, who's predictable. So if I'm an Iranian leader, i would I would be less worried about President Obama two or four years ago than I am about President Trump. Now, this doesn't mean that President Trump is going to war
0: against Iran. And it also doesn't mean he's gonna do the right thing.
1: And it doesn't mean that he's going to do the right thing. The, the, the issue with Trump is that he's, you cannot expect what he's about to do, and this is something that worries all parties mm. that have to deal with him. You see it in North Korea, and I think we see it now with Iran, you see it even with the European partners. It's harder for the Europeans to deal with Donald Trump, and you already see them trying to find ways by which to calm him down. You got a sense
0: that he likes that, though. It's like it almost feels like it's one of his tools, one of his strategies, because he's so into power and ego that this unpredictability has become a tool of of not just leverage, but a tool of control and power. And you, you feel that he's aware of that. It's not a coincidence, is what I'm saying, that he knows that his unpredictability is a big source of his strength.
1: Well, well uh, whether this is uh, something about his character that he is now turning into a strategy or something that is initially a strategy, I don't know. And, I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, Psychoanalysis. Uh, yeah, pop psychology, you know, uh, trying to analyze presidents from afar. But it is useful. Mm-hmm. We see it if we look at it as a tool, it is useful in foreign affairs and in international affairs. We we do see some things about Donald Trump that might be less useful. I'm not sure about him being able to, to build a strategy for something that is a long-term thoughtful strategy, but we do see him utilizing his character in, he, in the way he handles foreign affairs, and at least for the issues we're talking about, for dealing with tyrants, as you called it, uh, yeah, we, we, we have to say it has benefit.
0: It's interesting. During the election season, I remember asking a lot of my friends who hated Trump, the never Trumpers. Um, if they had to choose between Obama and Trump to negotiate with Iran over the nuclear deal. And all of them grudgingly said they'd pick Trump because they they admitted that as, as tough and rough and brash and rude as he was, that would probably be what is more required because he would probably walk away and he would know all the games of negotiation and he would make them sweat, And all that, so he may be someone you really hate, but the reality is you'd probably get a better deal with somebody like Trump, and that's it's almost a cognitive dissonance, separating emotions. Maybe you don't want him
1: as your friend, but you do want him as your lawyer, because he'll yeah he'll get more from the other side. He'll play dirty. He'll he'll use all the available tricks. He will not be polite or above the fray or try to look. dignified. He'll do whatever it
0: takes. Because there is a, a, a sort of a growing consensus that the Iran deal was skewed very much towards Iran and that America had a lot more leverage that it didn't use and that the the deal is really flawed, isn't there? I, I hope that you are right.
1: I mean, if there is a growing such consensus, uh, I, I don't know. I think there should be such hmm. growing consensus because I, I see that with, with the passage of time, with it, we see that the deal does not accomplish much. It brought us some years of calm, but we see Iran keep advancing in the region. We see how Iran is using the quiet that it got from the nuclear deal to meddle in other people's business uh, in other ways. So so I don't think this deal is is defensible. I think it was not a good deal, and I think that... Um, it was clear from the get-go that the American administration was too eager to get a deal, and hence it was willing to give the Iranians more than they should have been given.
0: Well, I read an analysis to be, because it was so focused on that one aspect of slowing down their progress on building a nuclear weapon and that they allowed so much latitude on everything else that it just added to the chaos and conflagration in Syria, which had a domino effect with the millions of refugees that is now influencing the European landscape.
1: Look, look at this uh, in, 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 in the following way. What Iran is looking for is not to have a bomb. To have a bomb is a means to an end. What's the end goal? The end goal is dominance. So all the deal forces them to do is to change focus, the, change the focus and to change the, the the chain of things that they do. So if they meant to have a bomb first and go into other countries second, they reverse the, the, uh, the order of things. The deal gave them the time to do what they need to do in and other countries. And the and money. And the money. So they can meddle in Yemen and they can meddle in Syria and they can do all kinds of of stuff and prepare the ground for the day the deal expires, just around the corner, and then they'll also have their bomb. So just by changing the order of, of action, they will get to the
0: same goal. And also knowing that they have a lot of leverage if they believe that we're desperate to keep the deal. Going. That's true. Right. That's true. So speaking of chaos, uh, you mentioned earlier before the show that the uh, next few weeks are going to be some of the most difficult, sensitive and uh, crazy, if you will. There's so much and dangerous and dangerous. Um, so there's the move of the embassy American Embassy on May 15th, there is the deadline of the Iran nuclear deal on the 12th, and there's stuff in Gaza. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, m- moving, from the, moving from the Iranian front to the Palestinian front, you, you basically have two things to deal with. One is the issue of the embassy, and clearly the, the decision by, on the part of the U.S. to move the embassy to Jerusalem is something that steered a lot of anger on the Palestinian side, and we don't know what action the Palestinians might take or if there are demonstrations or what other means they might use to, to show their, um, their displeasement with, with this move. So this is one issue. And then you have the issue of Gaza, what Hamas is trying to do in Gaza for the past couple of weeks, and, and it's going to intensify... Uh, towards the uh, uh, the middle towards uh, as we get mid- closer to mid-May. may 15th yeah uh, is to try and have more and more people walking into the israeli you know trying to cross the israeli border and israel made it clear that it is not it will not be willing to let these people cross the border and we saw in the first couple of weeks a number of casualties before b- because of the insistence Of Israel to keep its borders safe so Israel made its point by even killing some people Mm -hmm. and you know this is a controversial move but Israel said if we are not going to use force then people are going to just cross the border from Gaza to Israel which is something that no sovereign country will be willing to allow so now the question is whether Hamas can get more people to come and whether they get more people to walk towards defense and whether they force Israel to use even more force to prevent such scenario from happening. If this, if this is the scenario that we are going to see, uh, it might end up...
0: Um, a bloodbath. Yeah, it, it, could, it could become very violent. It's a real dilemma because according to international law, you know, you're only allowed to use live fire if somebody, you know, is an immediate threat. But in this case, technically, it's not an immediate threat. But if you have a thousands of people just sort of creating a breach in the fence and starting to invade your country, it's really a dilemma for for the Israeli army.
1: Yeah, and it's even more complicated because of because of military considerations. You know that the time you have to prevent people from toppling the fence is is limited so you have to begin stopping them before they reach mm. the fence mm. if you if you only start shooting when they're already there then you won't be able to stop them from I crossing see. over so you must begin when they are still distant from the fence and this is why this is why you see people getting hurt when they are still 200 meters away from the fence if you go to military planners they'll say well if you wait until these people are, are 20 meters from the fence it'll be too late for you so have
0: you talked to your contacts the idf on this
1: i i spoke to several idf sources about this and and this is what they tell me this is this is what they do i know i know that some people are Upset and as we should all be upset about the loss of human life uh, near near the fence But the fact of the matter is that not many people got killed by Israel in the past few weeks And and I
0: think you mean relatively to had they already crossed the fence exactly in the hundreds or thousands
1: you have to send a very clear message Don't get get too close. Don't get too close because if they do get close and if you have to use machine guns rather than snipers, then it becomes much more dangerous for both sides and it will end up with many more Palestinians killed than uh, what you see today.
0: Especially if some of the ones crossing over are terrorists who can endanger some of the villages that are really close to the border. I, I agree. Right. So
1: so so you you again the, these are these are tough dilemmas and these are it's uh, you know these are things that people aren't used to to have to deal with but this is your choice here either you send a very clear message of deterrence now which might mean even killing some people away from the fence or you might end up with thousands getting near the fence and you having to use much heavier uh, weaponry to prevent them from crossing over. And then you might end up with having dozens or even hundreds be getting killed.
0: You know, it's interesting because whenever I read the latest research or analysis on the schism between the Jews of Israel and the Jews of America, uh, we're, we're always hearing that there's, we're, we're growing apart um, and that in Israel there's a real unanimous unanimity when it comes to security because, you know, Israeli voters all have seen somebody died, know of somebody who died in, in a war or in a terrorist attack, and it seems that security dominates the consciousness of Israeli society Whereas I can understand if you're an American Jew and you're living on the Upper West Side, New York, or any place in America, and you really are not exposed to the kind of daily danger that you see in Israel, that you would end up having a different world view. And I wonder if this, more than anything, is behind the schism between the two societies. So
1: look at two very recent examples of of what you just described. You have the the issue of Gaza, the the Gaza border, and you have recent attacks in Syria that are rumored to be by Israel. Israel never officially claimed responsibility for these uh, attacks, but you see attacks by missiles or by uh, uh, airplanes on uh, Iranian installations within Syria. On both of these issues, you'll have to... Um, you'll have to look to, to, to use a lot of means to find Israelis who oppose government actions. Vast majority, at least when it comes to Jewish Israelis, vast majority of Jewish Israelis support the government when it comes to these actions. Now, why is that? Because Israelis understand that, you know, there are issues of policy and, you know, the occupation and settlements and all these issues we can talk about and we can debate. But when it comes to operation by the IDF that is aimed at keeping Israel safe, this is something we don't have much debate about. You you know, you can still argue about some of the details, but generally speaking, you see... Coalition and opposition, supportive of actions in Syria, supportive of actions near the, the uh, Gaza border. And if for some Jews in America, uh, these are actions that are difficult to understand, um, they'll have to try harder to understand why Israel is doing what it's doing, because when it comes to taking risks, related to security, Um, I'll say it bluntly, I don't think Israel is ready to take Jewish American advice.
0: Now, do you think this is also connected to Netanyahu's success? I mean, he's been there for so long now and uh, the perception that he's really strong at security. uh, That's because, you know, at the end of the day, when you criticize the Israeli government, you're also criticizing the Israeli voter. Because the voter put him there, put the coalition in power. So h- how do you how do you s- sort of reconcile these these thoughts? Because I know a lot of my f- Jewish friends who criticize the Israeli government. They don't want to criticize Israelis, right? <laughs> but the truth is, is they're one and the same because the the Israelis voted for Netanyahu.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the things that 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 people here in the United States try to do. It it's not. It's not Israel that we... Uh, it's the government. It's the government of Israel, as if there is such government of Israel that is separate from the people of Israel. The people of Israel are the people who elected the government of Israel. Now, it's true that not all, not all Israelis are supportive of the government, although, as I said, on issues, on matters of security, most, vast majority of Israelis are supportive of the government. Here's, here's something also that many people here don't understand. When it comes to security and to using military force, Netanyahu is a very cautious leader. Um, He did not go to, he did not initiate wars. He does not use uh, the IDF recklessly. Some people might even argue that he's too reluctant to use the IDF. He did not bomb Iran. He, um, he did not start a war in Lebanon. Remember, the, the last uh, war that was initiated by Israel and became a huge war was the one in Lebanon. That was initiated by Prime Minister Olmert before Netanyahu. Netanyahu is much more reluctant to use force than many of his predecessors. Why do you think that is? Because he's a right-wing leader, and the right-wing never gets a pass on using force. It's easier for the left to use force. It's easier for the right to make peace. Um, Bibi knows that whenever he uses force, he'll be looked at with... uh, uh, Warmonger. Yeah. So he's... Again, on on using force, he's reluctant, he's cautious, he's experienced. Um, He does not loot he he does not do it uh, lightly uh, and this is something that again many people because of because of Netanyahu's political views because of the language he uses from time to time because of the um, political trickery that he uses from time to time they tend to look at him as a two-dimensional type of leader he's not two-dimensional he's a serious leader he's a serious thinker um and when it comes to using force, he's cautious and reluctant.
0: Now, what do you think he'll take if you just, you know, if we use our imagination, Five next five, 10 years, there are so many divisions among the Jews of America and the Jews of Israel and on issues like the prayer at the Western Wall, issues of conversion, and so many issues, issues of pluralism with the reform and the conservative movements. Not getting their proper due uh, in Israel. What do you envision as a, a scenario where the two societies, the two communities, can come closer?
1: Well, let, let me begin with the with the good news. I don't see an option for these two communities other than getting along. What what are what are we Israelis going to do? We are going to find distant relatives in tunisia in 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 pakistan you're you're the the ones that we have you you i mean American the Jews, Jews in the united states or or in other communities around the world you are the other half that we have and 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 you have the same problem you might be angry with israel or reluctant or or frustrated but what are you going to do you are going to support a jewish homeland in switzerland israel is the only jewish homeland that you're going to have so so that that this makes me optimistic in a sense because i i know we have no choice now how do we bring about such outcome i think it begins with a realization of both sides that there's no other option. And with a realization that American Jews and Israeli Jews are going to be different in many ways and are going to have difference of opinion on many issues and are going to be dissatisfied with the um, actions of the other side
0: Sort of de-dramatize.
1: To de-dramatize and to look for common ground on the things that we care about. We, there are many things that we share. We share cultural things. We share books. We share history. There, there is, you know, there is life beyond politics. You know, we Jews, we, we tend to think too much about politics and not enough about the other good things in life. So let's say we disagree about politics or about many political issues and let's do the things that we don't disagree on. Let's talk about the Parsha of the week. Let's talk about Jewish history. Let's Let's talk about Jewish values. Let's talk about all the things that we can talk about without getting into a nasty argument. And on the political stuff, let's focus on the big picture. Let's make sure... There's no anti-Semitism. We all think anti-Semitism is bad. So this is something Israelis and American Jews can agree on. We all agree, or most of us agree, that to have a Jewish and democratic state in Israel is of great importance. So let keep, let's keep that in mind. And, and again, you, you said let's tone it down, let's have reasonable, realistic expectations. Israel is not going to change its military tactics because of the reluctance of some people here. And American Jews either aren't going to be like Israelis. They have their own opinions, their own views. They have their own customs. I don't expect them to be all like Israelis.
0: Yeah. You know, from uh, a lot of my discussions, there's a sense here in America that as long as there's a governing coalition like that's sort of a right-wing governing coalition that includes the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox in the coalition, it's going to be hard to improve the relationship. Do you agree with that? I agree that it makes it more complicated. Then again,
1: it is the Israeli people who elect such coalitions. And Again, people have short memories. There were very few coalitions in Israel's past without Haredis. It's not as if only when there's a right-wing coalition, Haredis are part of the coalition. In in fact, one of one of the um, main Haredi politicians, uh, uh, Knesset member Moshe Gafni, just the other day, I heard him on the radio having an interview, and he was frustrated with the coalition over something. And he said, you know what? If they don't give me what I want, we'll just go with the left-wing coalition next time because left-wing coalitions always give me what I want because they only worry about peace. And if, if I'm willing to go with them and you know, let them, let them talk to the Palestinians, they'll give me on the religious front whatever I want. So it's not as if labor party coalitions do not give Haredi's power. They are willing to trade power for for the things that they care about, and this is that is the meaning of, of of coalition politics. You have a different system here. It has its advantages and disadvantages. It's much more polarized because you have a two-party system. So you're either a friend or an enemy. In Israel, when you build coalitions, you have to learn to live with other people. You have to learn how to maneuver. You have to learn that today's uh, enemy can be tomorrow's partner. So it's, it's a more uh, flexible type of system, and it has these uh, disadvantages. Now,
0: the summer coming up, Right there's some important things to uh, to expect in in terms of the coalition. Can you talk about what we can expect the next few months?
1: So so we were talking about Haredes. Let's let's begin with with the most important issue for the Haredes and one of the most problematic for the coalition. That's the draft of Haredes into the IDF into a military service. It is something that the coalition must deal with because of. Uh, Supreme Court deadlines, so they must they must have a new new le- legislation. They must pass some kind of bill, and whether they manage to do it is still up in the air. I don't know. Uh, another issue that is under consideration by the Supreme Court, and hence the coalition must pass the bill, and this is going to be an issue between. Israeli Jews and American Jews again is a new conversion bill. Uh, The government tried to pass a conversion bill about a year and a half ago. It became a hot topic. Netanyahu uh, uh, appointed a committee to talk about this bill for a while before it goes back to the Knesset. But now a bill must be passed because otherwise the Supreme Court is going to give everybody permission to to do conversions in Israel Um, and the bill that this government is about to pass is probably not one that uh, American Jews are going to to like. It's going to give more authority to the orthodox version of conversion, uh, 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 an official authority to the orthodox way of conversion. And it's going to be a, an issue for the coalition and for Israel diaspora Meanwhile, relations.
0: Bibi is going to try to survive, right? He has possible indictments coming down the pike and there's talk of possible early elections. What's your take on that?
1: Well, early elections can happen in one of two scenarios. Either because the the coalition uh, can't agree. F- fail, fails to deal with one of the topics <laughs> I, I was talking about. The Haredi draft is... Could be a major, a major problem for the coalition, and then they might decide to go to early election, or because uh, because of a decision by Netanyahu to go to early election uh, over his investigations. If he sees that an indictment is likely or is becoming uh, near, he might decide to go to early election, gain. The
0: Popular vote, support.
1: If he, if he if he can show that the public wants him to still be prime minister, even though there are investigations, even though there are likely indictments, this might help him with the attorney general or maybe even when the, with the court when they consider possible, uh, possible scenarios for his indictments.
0: Now, you're going to be in the States the next 10 days or so. Uh, where are you going to be on that big day, May 15th?
1: Uh, on Are May 15th, I'm, I'm going to be in transition between the United States and Israel.
0: That's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Because uh, one of the things I want to announce to our listeners is we're going to be trying to be in touch with uh, Shmuel over the next few weeks to get some immediate hot takes as events develop. So we'll, uh, that's kind of interesting. You're going to be in the air. That's like an well, epic I, I'll, day, I'll, I'll isn't have, it? I'll have
1: to look at my calendar and see what the exact time of my flight. But we'll either do it here or or immediately Just after I land in Israel.
0: You hope to have Wi-Fi on the flight, but you'll have known about uh, May twelfth, so the the, the decision yeah. on the Iran deal. I I, when,
1: I will still be in the United States when right. when there is a decision on the Iran deal.
0: Right. So we'll know about how bad Gaza can be and the deal on the twelfth, and then you know the fifteenth. So. It's going to be an interesting few weeks and interesting summer. Shmuel Rosner, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your wisdom. Always a pleasure.